Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. This is Stephen Dimmitt. I have a very interesting guest and topic today. Heath Jennings is my guest. Heath is a physical therapist and a functional medicine practitioner based in South Carolina. And he is also a climber and a listener to this podcast. And he reached out to me after a follow-up that I did with Mike Doyle, in which Mike was talking about a chronic elbow injury that he has been dealing with for some time and about the chronic pain of that injury. And he said some things in that conversation that piqued Heath's interest and that he thought were some common areas of confusion when it comes to chronic pain in particular. And he wanted to chat with me about it. Heath has been studying the nervous system and pain science for more than 20 years. So we talked on the phone a couple of months ago, and it was fascinating. I learned a lot, and he was able to help give me some guidance rehabbing a finger injury that I had been dealing with when I was down in Waco. So I invited him on the show, and we did an entire episode all about pain, where pain comes from, and how the brain uses pain as a protective mechanism and why that doesn't necessarily mean that pain is just in our heads, as I believe Mike said in my follow-up with him. And we got really practical as well and talked about how Heath works with clients to rehab their pain and how he recently rehabbed a finger injury and an elbow injury that he was dealing with. So I think this episode will be not only fascinating from a theoretical standpoint, but I think it'll be really practically helpful as well. As I said, Heath is also a functional medicine practitioner, and toward the end of our episode, we got into some of the lifestyle interventions he recommends for rehab with his clients. We talked about why he is a fan of low-carb diets in a lot of cases, and some of his other recommendations for ways we can reduce our stress be kinder to ourselves, and aid in our recovery. I recommend checking out the show notes for this one. I added a lot of resources over there if you want to dive deeper into any of this stuff. And if you find this topic interesting, I highly recommend a short video of a TED Talk given by Lorimer Mosley, all about pain. We talked about that one in the episode. If you find anything from our conversation confusing, or if we don't do the descriptions justice, that TED Talk and the illustrations in it will make things a lot more clear. You can find that video in the show notes for this episode at thenuggetclimbing.com. If you want to support the podcast, you can do that at the website as well. Just look for an orange support the podcast button at the top of the page, or if you're on your iPhone, click those three little lines and you'll see it there in your drop-down menu. I encourage you to sign up for Patreon. That is an excellent way to support the podcast and that will get you access to upcoming guests so you can submit questions and hear me ask your questions on the show. And you will get some bonus content in the form of follow-up episodes as well. Again, you can find show notes, and ways to support the podcast and a link to Patreon at thenuggetclimbing.com. Okay, I hope you find this episode as interesting and as helpful as I did. Please enjoy this deep dive into the world of pain with Heath Jennings. Cut. 
Well, hi, Heath. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. I, I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'm excited about this conversation, uh, not only because I think it will be a very interesting and informative deep dive into pain and pain science and help us all understand what's happening when we feel pain, but that understanding will actually help inform us as far as how we rehab stubborn injuries, in particular chronic injuries. I think this will be a really useful conversation. So I, I thought we could start with how you and I connected. And um, we connected through this conversation that I put out with uh, Mike Doyle. I did a follow-up with him and he was kind of lamenting this elbow injury and some of the chronic pain that he's dealing with in this idea that, you know, the pain's in his head and that's been kind of a sticking point. But that's kind of how we connected and what I want to dive into here. But I thought that first it might be helpful for our listeners if you would just let us know who you are. Tell me about your physical therapy practice and, uh, and where you're coming from as far as your interest in pain science. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Heath Jennings. I'm a physical therapist and a functional medicine practitioner. Um, let's see, I graduated from PT school in 2001 and actually started looking into a lot of the pain science even while I was still in school. Um, I was lucky enough to have my now wife, who's also a PT, and she was working with an Australian therapist who kind of helped to point me in this direction. Uh, his name's Stuart Canavan. And then also one of my professors at school, um, he had a little handout from a course dealing with complex regional pain syndromes. And I was able to read that as well and start to get some of this information. And so I've been, I guess, dealing with pain ever since, uh, you know, with patients, clients, and there's definitely you know, differences with it. Um, people are more familiar with kind of the acute side of things, but when it becomes chronic, that's when it starts to get a little tricky. And to be honest, the science has kind of changed from back in 2001 or the early 2000s to where it is now. Um, so it's, it's come a long way. Uh, you know, for instance, one of the things we used to tell people is that these little small diameter nerve fibers would carry pain up to the brain, you know, when there was any kind of damage or anything like that. Um, and so that's how the brain knew. And we kind of know now that the nerve fibers, they just send information up there and pain is an output from the brain, whether it's an acute injury or a chronic injury. Hmm. Yeah, and it seems like that's a pretty significant paradigm shift that, that we can dive into today as far as uh, understanding what pain is and whether it's coming from our minds or not. But it's it's the shift from something in our body telling our brain that something hurts to this understanding that, no, it's actually our brain interpreting information and deciding that it needs to produce a sensation of pain to protect us and to keep us safe. Am, right. I, am I getting that right? Yes. Yes. So the, the way I kind of like to explain it to people is that pain is a protective mechanism. Uh, our brain's primary goal is to keep us alive. And so, you know, if there, it makes perfect sense if we have a big injury, you know, or just one that kind of where there's some tissue damage there. If our brain has pain as an output, it keeps us off of that, you know, ankle that we sprain and gives that tissue time to heal so that then everything's good. We can get back to moving, walking, running, 
and be just fine. Um, and so it's always that protective aspect of it. And so that's where kind of knowing that now and then having that for a chronic pain standpoint, it actually gives us a lot more things we can do to have more control over things. We never have complete control, but at least we can do more things to try to make things better. Hmm. I'm curious, before we really dive in, I'd just love to hear from your perspective. What was it about that conversation with Mike or what Mike was saying or, or where he seems to be in his understanding of his own experience with his pain? What was it that made you want to reach out? The one comment he said was that it's all in my head. And that is a common thing that I hear with people, even after trying to explain kind of what it is, where it's coming from. Um, it's very easy for people to make that kind of misunderstanding or that misinterpretation and think that it's just in their head and that it's not real. And so that's kind of the tricky point is explaining to people that the pain's coming from their brain. You know, it's not actually the tissue telling the brain that it's damaged. It sends kind of those danger information and danger signals up there to the brain, but that pain still that output from that as the brain, you know, doing that as a protective mechanism. Hmm. And, but people kind of hear that. And so they think, okay, so I'm making all this up. There's actually not anything there. And the one thing with pain, it's always real. It's not made up and it's not just a figment of your imagination or something that's going in your head. Yeah. You sent me a few very interesting videos, uh, that I was able to, to watch that were very, um, fascinating before diving into this conversation. And this might be an interesting time to introduce Lorimer Mosley. Um, I'm curious, yes. yeah, who is Lorimer Mosley from your perspective? And um, I'd love to maybe dive into some of the examples that he shared in those videos, if you're familiar with any of those. Oh, sure. Or if you have your own. So, uh, his are pretty good. Um, I can <laughs> yeah, they are. definitely share some stories too, but uh, his are pretty, pretty unique and funny. He, he's, a uh, so Lorimer Mosley is a physical therapist in Australia. And so in Australia, so a phys physiotherapist and he and David Butler, another Australian physiotherapist have done a good bit of research with pain, written different books. Um, I attended a Butler seminar, gosh, 2004, I want to say. Um, and then I've done another, they have a, or at least David Butler has a group, the NOI group, and did another course in Chicago just a few years ago. Um, so Laura Mosley, he's been researching pain probably his whole career. Um, one of the videos, he shares a story that when he was in school, he was interested in pain. And his professor said one thing to him that people that have the most catastrophic injuries have the least amount of pain. And he told Lorimer to go figure out why. <laughs> and he shares in that, that video <clears throat> that he created a little questionnaire and he went to one of the emergency rooms in Australia and everybody who came in, he'd ask them different questions, you know, the rate your pain on a scale of one to 10, all that kind of stuff. And so he was doing that with different people. And then this guy comes in with the crooked part of a hammer lodged into his neck. Mm. And he said, you know, there's blood on the shirt, but he's walking in just casual as can be. Um, and actually turns around and yells at the person with him to hurry up. <laughs> and so he goes over, starts asking him questions. Well, how much pain are you having? Oh, I'm not having any. And so he starts thinking like, okay, he's either 
crazy or he's had a ton of pain medication already or he's one of those rare people who really they never feel pain Uh, real quickly heath this is the back of the metal part of the hammer that like you use to pry a nail out for instance right the sharp part yes (laughs) okay and it's lodged in his neck in his neck and so as they keep talking, at one point, the man gets up and he kind of leans over a little bit. So the hammer's sticking straight up and he starts walking through the chairs in the emergency room. And he asks Lorimer, what am I? And he says, I have no idea. And so he tells his friend, hey, do the sound effects. And so he, he gets back up, he walks around and the friend's going, dunna, dunna, dunna. And so he looks at Lorimer and he says, what am I? He's like, I don't know. And he said, I'm a hammerhead shark. And of course, it's a lot funnier with the Australian accent, but, you know. And so the really interesting thing with that is that, you know, that kind of shows he's not crazy. He'd already told him he hasn't taken any pain medicine. Um, so it's still kind of curious as to why he got hurt. And so it's kind of like, okay, he just can't feel pain. But on the way back to his chair, he bumps into an end table, hits his knee, screams out in pain. Hmm. So we can kind of see with that that there's nothing blocking. So, you know, if there was nerve sending input up to the brain to tell it it hurts, then the hammer should be doing the same thing if the knee can do it. And so what we see is it's kind of a context-dependent issue. And what I would say is probably kind of going on with that hammer. Um, if the brain were to have pain as an output, it's probably going to lead to shock, and that's going to be a big threat to his survival. And so, again, you know, the brain wants to survive. That's kind of the primary goal, primary objective. And so in that case, pain as an output is not appropriate. But, you know, when he bumps his knee, there's not a huge threat there. You know, so it's okay to feel that pain. Mm. It's not going to be a threat to survival. Interesting. So it's a message from the brain telling you not to do it anymore because it could lead to something bad. Whereas in the case of the hammer, it's already too late. Yeah, there's there's already a lot of damage that's occurred. Mm. And, you know, we've all at least heard stories, you know, of people being impaled, going into the emergency room, not having pain. It's that same kind of thing. If they really were to have pain, they'd probably go into shock and then not survive. Mm. And yeah, that way they can, the, the brain's just, it's amazing what it can do. The body's amazing. And so it's got different ways to kind of suppress what we would normally think would happen. And it definitely can do that, especially when, you know, we need to survive or we need to protect somebody else. Mm. I'll be sure to link to those videos in the show notes for people, especially I recommend watching uh, Lorimer's TED Talk. I found that really, really fascinating. And uh, I'll share one one more example from that. I believe he was describing a, an the experiment. What's, what's that? Oh, you go ahead. You share yours. Yeah. I was going to share one with um, an experiment that they did where they would touch a cold piece of metal to the back of the person's hand and show them either a red light or a blue light with no context, no more context than that. They didn't explain what the light Uh meant. They just showed them a different color light and touched a cold piece of metal to the back of their hand. And it was exactly the same stimulus. And the people that saw the red light reported a higher degree of pain from that sensation than the people that saw the blue light. It's, right. yeah, it's really fascinating what the, uh, the story or the context, the environmental factors that the brain is picking up, how that plays into the message that it decides to send. 
Oh, it definitely does. And uh, his other story um, explains that very well or illustrates that. Um, he was sharing a story where you know, he grew up in Australia, so he'd go hiking and you know, just doing, being outdoors. And so there's plenty of times as a kid and as he was growing up, he'd walk in the woods and have, you know, little twigs, sticks, scratch his legs. And so one day as an adult, he's out hiking. He feels a little scratch on his leg and she's like, oh, a little twig or, you know, stick, nothing to worry about. And finishes hiking, does whatever. Later on, he actually sees that he was bitten by a snake. And it's not just any snake. It's a Eastern uh, Australian snake eastern brown snake i think is the name and it's the most venomous snake i believe in australia <laughs> and so he actually survived and i think he even says too that the venom that it uses is kind of a neurotoxin in a sense so it should affect the nervous system in the brain but he didn't really have any effects from it and so he was lucky yeah you know, he survived didn't have any problems a while later he's out hiking with his friends in the woods he feels a little scratch on his leg and he falls down screaming in pain. <laughs> and so his friends stop, you know, they come back, they look at him, they're like, it's just a little twig that scratched you. <laughs> and so, you know, the first time nothing happened because his brain's thinking, oh, I've had this happen plenty of times. It's always been this. It's nothing to worry about. So, you know, there was no threat. The next time it's like, okay, the last time this happened, I was bitten by this poisonous snake and almost, you know, I could have died. So I need to do something different this time. <laughs> so. Yes, I love it. It's so fascinating. I, I would love to tie this back to uh, climbing injuries in particular. And sure. maybe we can start with, uh, with Mike as an example or with someone with a chronic elbow injury, something like that as an example. And I, I want to kind of give you the reins here. You gave me a really nice outline and I'm, I'm happy to just kind of go through it in order if, if you think that's the best way to go about it. So I'll kind of give you the reins, but I'd love to hear maybe how you would coach someone like Mike through rehabbing his pain. And, and maybe uh, I'll leave this up to you, but maybe we should start by drawing a further distinction between chronic and acute pain? Sure. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Because um, I know when we talked before, too, you mentioned having a finger injury, mm. and you were kind of curious how this how this relates to kind of what you would get from Esther Smith and her protocol that she has for finger injuries. Mm -hmm. And so it definitely, it doesn't, it's something that could be added to that. It's not where you would necessarily need to change anything that she has. Uh, Cause I love that protocol that she has. And I used it rehabbing myself as well with a finger injury. Mm. Um, and there's just some things that could be added to it depending on where people are. And so with that acute injury, and I'm pretty sure she even says it in her videos too, you know, if you see that swelling there, um, you know, the, fingers inflamed, you can feel the heat from it. You know, that's an acute injury. It kind of shows us that there was a little bit of tissue damage there. And so the pain that we're feeling in that area is a good thing. You know, it's our brain letting us know it got that information that, hey, we've had something happen here. What do we need to do? And it's like, okay, there was some damage. It's not life-threatening, but let's make it hurt a little bit just so we can get them to not keep grabbing things, not keep climbing, and give this some time to heal. And so, you know, if you do have that swelling, it might be good to rest the finger, you know, for a couple of days because that acute inflammation stage should be over within just a few days. And then after that, it's fine to, you know, start doing some things to put some weight on the finger again, start to get it 
back to normal and kind of treating it like it's as normal as you possibly can, hmm. that can help to kind of prevent getting into that chronic stage. Um, so I guess the biggest difference, you know, an acute injury is something that just happened kind of recently. And with a chronic injury, it's something that's been lingering and lingering for a long time. And what we know as far as tissue remodeling, tissue healing, most of that's going to have occurred within three to six months. So, you know, if you've had this finger injury and now it's six months later, it's not an issue of the tissue being damaged anymore. That tissue's healed as much as it's going to heal. So it may not be completely healed, but it's healed a good amount. And so it's, that's not the issue. That's not why your brain's still having pain as an output. Um, it's still having pain as an output because it still feels like it needs to protect you for whatever reason. Hmm. And so that's where, like we talked about, context playing a part. Um, our own thoughts can play a part on that too. And so if, you, if you've never had chronic pain or never had too many injuries, I love uh, one of NOI Group's illustrations. It kind of shows a mountain. And so you're like at the very peak of the mountain, so let's call it Everest, you know, if you really do get up there, that means you're working at such a high level that there probably is going to be some tissue damage that occurs. And so, you know, a little bit down the mountain, so not quite to the top, but pretty close, there's kind of this level um, where your brain's going to start trying to protect you before you get up there to that true tissue damage level. So we're thinking of the the mountain as like the, the peak being the very most pain. And then as you go down the mountain, less and less pain. Well, there will be less pain, but it, once you get to that peak, there's actually tissue damage that's occurring. Okay. And your brain actually tries to stop you before you get to that point. Okay. So maybe the mountain is more like your, your tissue capacity. Yes. With, with the peak. That's probably a better way. Okay. And so, I mean, we all have that point and we've heard the stories of the moms lifting cars off of their children. Hmm. And so, you know, they get to that point where they reach that peak because a lot of times there is tissue damage that occurs from that. And so, again, context plays a big part. You know, they're trying to save their child. So that you know, normal governor that the brain's going to use, it shuts that off so they can do what they need to do because of their loved one being in danger. Hmm. And so, you know, normally we can't kind of push that hard to get there because the brain stops us before we can. But the problem when someone has chronic pain is that now that tissue tolerance level, so before injury, it actually can come down as well, but definitely that protect by pain level of the brain comes down. So let's say in a normal person, it's like at camp four or, you know, whatever the last camp is before making the summit. If you've got chronic pain, that protect by pain level might be at camp one now. And so you really can't do much before you start getting some of those same pain output signals from the brain trying to stop you. Mm, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I remember this from one of the videos from Lorimer. And again, I'll link to these in the show notes. But I think there was a little two-dimensional picture of a mountain with the very top being tissue damage. And mm -hmm. your brain has this little buffer Right. That it uses to govern you, protect you from risking tissue damage. And in chronic pain cases, that tissue, that, that buffer rather has just grown. That buffer, right. that buffer has stretched further down the mountain so that you can't get even remotely close to that tissue capacity limit. 
which can sometimes be a bad thing because it's being overly protective and keeping you from being right. able to do normal things without pain. Right. Yeah. The key thing there is that at that point, the brain's now overprotective. Hmm. And so, you know, we still want it to protect us from things that it needs to. We just don't need it to protect us from everything so that we can't do anything. Mm. So, okay. Um, so I guess then going back to kind of the rehab side of things. So again, if we're kind of at that six week point or six month point, then, you know, if we are doing something and we have pain, we need to try to, you know, be clear one, make sure it's not another acute injury happening, you know, somewhere else or in that same tissue, more than likely, though, it's just that the, the brain's learned that it needs to protect and it needs to keep protecting. It's, it hasn't gotten out of that role yet. And so in that case, we can be careful kind of how we talk to ourselves. Um, so, you know, elbows tend to be very kind of chronic injuries in climbers, and especially that medial elbow pain, you know, golfer's elbow, climber's elbow. And what people will do a lot of times is they'll just take time off. Okay. It hurts. I won't do anything. And then they'll take time off. The pain goes away because they're not doing anything. And then they start trying to climb again or work out again. And the pain comes right back. And especially when that's gone on long enough, we have that same thing we're talking about with the mountain and that protective level kind of coming down. And so in that case, reminding ourselves that, okay, my elbow's fine. The tissue's healed. It's been six months. Everything's fine. I should expect some discomfort, some pain with this. It's okay. By telling ourselves that, we can help to decrease that threat level in the brain. And so that now when that information comes up from the elbow to the brain, it can have that information come in and be like, oh, okay, this is okay. I don't now have to have pain as an output trying to protect it. Otherwise, if we're thinking, oh, oh no, here goes my elbow again. Oh, I'm never going to be able to climb. Oh, this is the end of everything. <laughs> if we do that, we just sensitize the nervous system and the brain so that now any information that comes in from that part of the body or really even any other part of the body, it's very likely now that that's going to be deemed as this big dangerous thing that the brain has to protect us from too. Hmm. And so that's why... We have to look at everything kind of during that rehab process. Uh, you know, a lot of times with the elbows, again, they're kind of tricky. Um, we always want to kind of say, oh, well, it was from climbing that caused it. Um, I had a left elbow injury not too long ago, and I don't really think it was from climbing that did it. Um, I think what happened is a lot of times actually while I'm sleeping, my elbow is just bent. And so it's kind of staying there for hours on end. And then just, you know, doing other things during the day that kind of irritated that tissue. And so then just gradually over time, it became an issue. And so to rehab that, you know, this it's really the same exercises. I don't have new exercises for people. I don't think we need new exercises. You know, I was able to do, you know, pronation. I was able to do, you know, wrist flexion with a dumbbell. And the general protocols for those are either using the eccentric motions for the muscle or isometrics. And so I do think those things are really good. Um, the difference, I guess, here, kind of where the chronic pain stuff can come into play too, if someone has a very hard time with that or they can't get past the point of that pain being this big danger signal, they may not be ready for those exercises yet. Mm. And so there's kind of a, 
a graded way to expose people to things. And so, again, like Esther Smith's protocol and these other protocols where you're doing traditional weight exercises, rehab exercises for things, that's the ultimate goal. We need that. We need movement for pain. Um, you know, our, we know that. The research is pretty clear that movement is one of the best things. So we want to get to that point. But for some people, when they're in this state, their brain's too sensitive. So any input coming in, is, especially if there's actual movement, is going to deem it as something that needs to protect and there's going to be pain there. So the good news is we can back off of that some. And so there's kind of three stages leading up to those traditional rehab exercises. And this is known as graded motor imagery. And I've seen this work really well for people too. So the first stage is doing a left-right discrimination. Um, there's been different research. Oh, yeah, this showing is fascinating. Different people, I guess with pain, they have they, like a right hand pain. Um, over time, their brain actually kind of can't see that hand clearly is the easiest way to say it. Uh, It's kind of like it gets smudged. And so here's a big science term. There's this part of our brain called the sensory homunculus. People don't need to remember that. Just understand that that's how the brain sees our body. And we look really funny to it. We, the areas of your body that are more sensitive, like your fingertips, your mouth, tongue, um, they take up more area in the brain. And so to your brain, you've got a really big head, really big mouth, really big tongue, hands, feet, <laughs> but your legs, arms, your body's pretty small. And so it's kind of like, instead of seeing each finger of that right hand clearly, it's just indistinct, you know, it's kind of smudged together. And they've even had some people where if they put their left hand, so they just cross their hands, so their left hand's now on the right side of their body, their right hand's on the left side of their body, their left hand hurts and their right hand doesn't anymore. Hmm. And again, it's just kind of that location of where the brain knows that hand should be on that side. And so it's making whatever's on that side hurt because it thinks it needs to protect it. That is fascinating. <laughs> so that's why it gets a little tricky sometimes. And so yeah. people get frustrated because you know, they want to be able to move. They want to do different things. And we got to start them out at this really low level. Um, and the recognized app from Lorimer and David Butler, it just has different pictures and there's a way to kind of progress it to where the pictures are more, are more difficult. There's more information in the pictures. And so that just means your brain has to process more information when it's trying to determine if what it sees is a right hand or a left hand. And the good thing about that app too, is we can kind of look to see how long it takes somebody to answer those questions and also how accurate they are for both left and right side. And that's where, you know, some people have to start. And there's even cases where they've mentioned people have pain even just doing that. So there's no actual movement, but just seeing hands in that position. The brain, there's different parts of a brain called mirror neurons. So it's going to kind of mimic those positions without us even thinking about it. And so for some people, that's even enough to kind of set the brain off to then protect by pain. And in those cases, you got to kind of back them off even more uh, to where they might just like watch TV or a movie with someone using their hands <laughs> and you know, maybe try to just do that. Um, but if they can get the left, right part pretty good, then they can progress to more visualization where they're seeing themselves do different things. And so, you know, for a climber, again, you could look at, I think there's elbow part for the recognize app too. So, you know, if it was at that, that 
bad, you know, to where they needed to back off from the exercises and go down that level. They could do that for a while until they're getting pretty good with accuracy. You know, the time's not too long by any means. It's, you know, maybe a second and a half or so. Then they can move to visualization, maybe seeing different kind of visualizing themselves doing different movements that would have hurt the elbow before, you know, that they would have deemed that as being something they, you know, the brain needs to protect them from and keep them from doing. And then they can move up to what's called mirror therapy. Um, and so in that case, again, let's say it's the elbow. Um, so if they had their left elbow, they would hide it with a mirror and they would put their right elbow in front of the mirror. And so they would kind of just you know, lean so they can see that mirror. Well, to your brain, that's going to look like a left elbow now. And so keeping the left arm still, you could move the right arm and to your brain is going to see your left arm moving. And so what the recognize app, the visualization and what the mirror therapy is doing, it's just trying to get some input there to your brain in a safe way, non-threatening environment to where it can then start to normalize things and realize like, okay, this is okay. This isn't a threat. I don't have to protect so much. And so it can kind of start to dampen down instead of getting more excited. Mm. And then after that, you can hopefully get back. You can Then you can start kind of moving both arms when that's still hidden by the mirror. And then you can move the mirror, start moving, and then start adding weight and kind of keep progressing that way. Okay. I want to pause here and I want to kind of say all this back to you and see if I'm understanding it right and, and maybe uh, add a little more clarification. So. The Recognize app, I will link mm-hmm. to that in the show notes, and I haven't used it, but it sounds like what that's doing is it's, you know, if you have pain in your right hand, for instance, it's showing you someone using their hand in the positions that would normally be painful and um, giving you a chance to to recognize that as a right hand that's not feeling pain. I, I, am I getting that correct? It's... So kind of, I guess at the basic level, it's just a, it's the hands in different positions. And then as you kind of progress to the levels, it can get more complicated where the hand might be holding something or they become kind of abstract too. So it might even be a kind of more abstract painting of a right hand or left hand. And so, you know, some of the things, they're pretty crazy. You know, your first thought when you see it is, oh my gosh, what is that? And so it just kind of shows kind of how much information the brain's having to take in, but that's how you know you're kind of getting better too. You know, if you start with the okay. like vanilla, very basic images, and you know, let's say initially you're around like 50% for the right and left, and it's two, three seconds to answer things. You know, it takes that long just to be able to answer it. Can you clarify that? So are you just answering, okay, this picture is a right hand? Right. Okay. So yeah, you'll have two buttons at the bottom. One says left, one says right. Okay. And so the idea, you don't want to then like move your hand to try to see what the answer is. Mm. You really want to kind of try to do it without thinking. Your brain's going to naturally pick a hand and it's going to kind of process it. So it's going to run down that pathway to see if it is a right hand. And then if it's not, it's going to come back and then run down that pathway to see if it's the left hand and then, okay, yes, it was. And then you'll answer. And so that's why you can sometimes see that time discrepancy. And that's where you kind of sometimes need a therapist that understands this stuff too, to help out because you might, again, let's say you got the right hand pain. 
you might have really fast responses for that right hand and very accurate responses for that right hand and then be very inaccurate on the left and take a long time to answer on the left. But in that case, it could be because the brain is so protective, it just sees every single thing as a right hand. Whoa, that's And so, so it doesn't kind of want to go to that left. And then you could have the opposite to where, you know, the left is great, the right hand's terrible because it wants to avoid that right so much and it protective mechanism too. Hmm. So it takes a little bit of teasing that information out to see exactly what it means. But the good news is with practice, it does get better. And I've seen that with several clients. You know, I mean, it, it, it will improve and pain levels start going down and then they can start doing more and more activities too. That is fascinating. <laughs> it's it's crazy. Yeah, um, it sounds like magic, but I totally, <laughs> yeah, it, it totally makes sense in a way. That's just so interesting. Well, it, you know, again, the point is always to get people back to moving. I remember a patient I had with low back pain, and the very first day I saw him, we couldn't even sit up on the side of the bed. You know, his back hurt so much that coming up about 45 degrees to sit up, that was as far as we could get that day. And so I explained some of the pain science to him. Um, I let him watch a little video on YouTube that helps to explain some of it as well. We did the recognize app for low back. And then I wanted him to move in some. So I just put his feet up on a pillow and had him pump his ankles because that way we're getting some movement in his muscles. We're getting some movement in the nerves, getting some movement in the joints there. And that was it. And so that's what we did. I don't remember how long, but we did that for a while. And then probably within six weeks, he was able to stand up from the bed and walk to the living room. Hmm. And he hadn't been able to you know, get out of bed and do anything for a long time. And you know, even at that point, too, you know, he still had some pain. So it's not that all the pain went away. But instead of being you know, 9, 10 over 10, just coming up 45 degrees, now he's you know three or four, but walk into the living room. Mm. So it, it can make a dramatic impact. It, you just got to be patient with it. I want to read something. This is from uh, an article that you shared with me that you have written. And okay. uh, I, I think it'll help people understand that are listening to this, why we're talking about all this in the, in the first place and why understanding how pain works is more than just interesting. It can actually lead to reduced pain and, and, um, it's actually the first step of therapy like we're talking about. But yeah, so I'll read a paragraph. And you wrote, this is in the context of helping someone treat chronic lower back pain. Okay. You wrote, it is important to understand that pain is a strategy the brain uses to protect the body. It is not always something that needs to be avoided. It is possible that chronic lower back pain is an example of the brain, quote, loving you too much, end quote. Understanding what pain is helps to change its threat level. This helps the brain to relax. In essence, this means that the input to the brain is less likely to excite the brain, and since the brain is not excited, it is less likely to make the output a pain response. So yeah, I, I really I really thought that encapsulated kind of the, the principal idea of what we're talking about here really well, and I thought that was a... Yeah, a really uh, helpful paragraph. Thank you. I, I think it's important because we have kind of this negative connotation of pain, understandably. You know, I mean, who wants to go around hurting? Um, but 
the goal of this pain education is to try to take kind of that fear away. Because uh, like we said, our brain's always trying to protect us. And so we see this with chronic pain. We see this with trauma and any kind of stress response too. The reason why our body responds in that way is a protective mechanism. And a lot of times clients that I see, patients that I see, they feel like their body's fighting against them and working against them. And so I'm sure my goal kind of felt that same way. Like, you know, my elbow is not really working with me here. And this is being a pain in the, you know, in the, you know, where. And so trying to kind of teach people too about the brain, it's doing this because it does love you. And in this case, it's just loving you a little too much. That can start to help decrease that threat level. And people see that, okay, so my body's actually not working against me. It's doing what it thinks it needs to do to help me and protect me. And it's just kind of learned over time that this was effective in the past. So this is its go-to mechanism for protection. But now I can, you know, by taking care of stress, by taking care of my thoughts, different things, change that context around it to where now that threat level's not there. And so now it can learn to respond in a different way. Hmm. Yeah, well said. And that's really helpful. <clears throat> I'm curious, as far as, you know, chronic pain goes or someone dealing with like a, a hurt finger that's been a stubborn hurt finger for a long time or, you know, stubborn elbow pain, elbow tendonitis, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. How would you rule out real tissue damage or the risk to worsening tissue damage versus jumping into retraining the brain to stop or reducing that, uh, that pain signal that it's outputting? that's where it can be tricky. And, you know, I'm sure this is probably something that Esther struggled with too, to make sure of putting information out where it would be helpful for people, but not lead to you know, more problems. Mm. And so I would say, you know, if anyone has an issue with their finger, their elbow or any part of their body, if they're not sure, they need to go see someone to get it checked out to be on the safe side. Uh, this is you know, where the internet and different things can be dangerous because you get some information, but you don't quite have everything. Mm. And you, know, you can just sometimes end up doing too much. Um, so part of it is looking to see about that inflammatory response. Um, inflammation's gotten a bad rap lately. Uh, like in the functional medicine space, people talk about chronic low-grade inflammation and how it leads to different health issues. And that is true. Uh, so we don't want chronic inflammation there, but inflammation itself is a part of the natural healing process. And so we do need it there. And that's where some medications that we use as well kind of decrease inflammation. And so it could hamper that healing process. Hmm. So you know, there are, you know, as a therapist, we're trained to look at the way people move and different tests to kind of see if there is tissue damage, you know, and kind of see if there's more of a mechanical issue going on. Uh, So, you know, let's say in the shoulder, people can't reach all the way over their head. We can look at things and see if that shoulder is functioning the way it should. If it's not, it's, you know, the shoulder is going to send that information to the brain that, hey, something's not right here. And then the brain could decide, hey, I still need to protect my pain. It's still not that shoulder telling it. It's just saying, hey, something's not right. What do we need to do? And then, you know, as a manual therapist, I could get in there and maybe do some joint modes for that humeral head, kind of restore some of that. I think, I don't know that I've seen any research on this, but part of what I think goes on too, just when we touch people, 
that's a sensory experience. And so I think that helps to kind of give the brain some input in that sensory homunculus and kind of help to start normalizing the way it sees things as well. And so I don't think we can say it's just as simple as, oh, well, I moved that joint. And I know there's stories of um, Jeffrey Maitland is, he's kind of credited with the Australian physical therapy approach. And I've heard stories that people that would come to train with him, you know, he would ask them, they're doing like a joint move on somebody. He's like, what are you treating? And they would get real specific with something and he'd slap them in the back of the head and ask them again. And they'd say, I'm treating everything underneath my hand. And, you know, I think that's a perfect example that we don't really necessarily know everything we're treating because, you know, when I put my hand on somebody, there's skin there, there's nerves, there's muscles, blood vessels, joints, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things. So it's hard to say exactly what I'm doing that's making the biggest difference. Hmm. You know, so the good news is we could look at somebody, kind of see what's going on. We can then treat them and then we can reassess. So if there's that lifting the arm up overhead is problem, we see that we decide to try this technique and then we can retest to see if it helped out. And, you know, if it did, that kind of tells us, okay, we're on the right path. If it didn't, then there must be something else. So I know that doesn't exactly answer kind of how to know that acute or chronic side. The time factor definitely comes into play there too. You know, I mean, if, if you're climbing and you feel something in your finger right as you're climbing, then that's going to be an acute injury. You know, there may be some other things that led up to that, but that's an acute injury. If you see that swelling, that redness there, then you know there was an acute injury there, and now we've got some inflammation. We want to let that take its course so that that tissue does heal. And again, we don't, you know, it used to be back in the day that, you know, if you hurt your finger, you take six weeks, three months off before you climbed again. And that's not what we want to do. Um, that's why I love Esther's protocol. And, you know, it starts to get people back just kind of moving and getting that range of motion in their fingers. And I think that's important. I think that helps to kind of decrease the threat level for the brain, too, because it sees, okay, my hand can still move. So then it's not as threatening. And so that helps to kind of prevent getting into that chronic pain stage. And elbows are a little bit trickier because they do, we don't tend to often have that kind of acute injury with it where we notice the inflammation we notice redness swelling it just seems to be a lot more insidious it just kind of creeps in over time Mm. and so for the elbows a lot of times i think people are fine to kind of start right away with doing some of the movement and activities just to kind of see okay you know with a with the finger it, it really just depends if it's something that's been lingering for a long period of time then it's probably more chronic. And again, I wouldn't say just go ahead and load it to the max by any means, but start putting some load on it to where you do feel a little bit of discomfort. And, you know, especially like with the elbow, that discomfort kind of, especially if it's in that same spot, lets you know you're working the area that you need to. Mm. And I do think that's kind of the case with the fingers as well. We just want to do it in a very graduated and graded way. So, you know, if you can normally hang on a 20 millimeter edge with a hundred pounds on your waist, you know, don't start doing that day one, <laughs> you know? So, right. um, so what I did for my right hand, it was my ring f- or my middle finger. And I'm not sure if it really was an A2 strain or not. Um, I'm kind of curious if it's a little more of some of the collateral ligaments too. I think just some movement there, 
But I think what led to it was just I kind of got into a normal warm-up routine kind of during the summer and early fall when it was warm and just kind of did that same thing during the wintertime when it was cool climbing on the moon board at my house. Mm. And so I don't think I was probably quite warmed up enough for those cooler weathers just doing that same warm-up. Interesting. And then I think, too, kind of working on a certain problem too often. Um, work had got a little busy, so I couldn't also go into the climbing gym to kind of spread things out a little bit. And so then I just kind of noticed, okay, yeah, my finger's a little sore and it is a little swollen. And so I took a little time off, uh, you know, just a few days and then started with the you know, gliding exercises just for the tendons and did that for a while. And then I would start to load. And what I actually did using the tension block, I actually would put it on a band, um, that was attached to a pull-up bar. That way I could kind of get in a kind of lock-off position. And I would actually kind of go into a full cramp position. It was very light band, so there wasn't much resistance. But I'd go into that full cramp position, kind of get it back in that lock-off, and then just slowly do an eccentric and Mm. let my fingers come out. Um, And so, you know, if it it hurt too much, then I'd back off, go even lower on the resistance. And if it felt good, then I'd kind of stay there. And I would do that for like, a. I did it every day, multiple times a day. And so if it felt good, I'd stay there for a day or two. And then I'd bump up the weight a little bit. So increase the resistance and just kind of keep going up that way. And then once that got to be pretty good and I had a decent amount of resistance, then I liked using the tension block because, again, I can just do kind of one hand. My concern with the hang board was that I would compensate too much and do it mostly with the left and kind of unweight the right. And so this way I knew exactly how much I was doing could still control it pretty well. And so then I would do like a half cramp with the tension block. And I mean, at first it might only been five pounds and just kind of see how that was, hold it for, you know, a little bit, maybe 30 seconds or so, and then kind of keep gradual, gradually add more and more weight to it. And so I, I really took my time during that process and probably was more conservative with the progression than I needed to be. But I wanted to be careful because I also need my hands for my career as well. So, Hmm. you know, if it was just climbing, I probably would have been a little more aggressive. Um, I did keep climbing during that time. I stayed off the moon board. I knew it'd be too difficult for my hand. Um, But there were times climbing just in the gym where, like my hand would maybe turn a little bit and that's why I wonder about the collateral side. And so my finger would be a little bit sore. So one of the sayings I like to tell people too is, you know, when they're doing any of this and they're starting to move is, you know, don't flare up, but when you do, don't freak out about it. Mm. And I stole that from Butler in his book. So I got to give them credit. I really and like so, that. Yeah. And so, I mean, I flared up my hand, you know, my finger did swell a little bit. It's like, Oh, okay. I know what did it. I went just a little bit too hard too soon. So let me back off a little bit again and get right back up there. And I think what scares people, especially climbers, when we have a finger injury and we try doing something, then it comes back, so to speak, is we're like, oh, no, I'm not going to be able to do this again. And we kind of start going down that negative self-talk or that negative path. Mm, and mm-hmm. all we're doing then is just kind of reinforcing that this is a big issue and our brain needs to protect us from this. Mm. And so that's why having that saying, okay, don't flare up, 
But when you do, don't freak out about it. It already says you're going to you're going to flare up. You're going to do too much at some point. That's just kind of human nature. And so it's not a big deal. And so, you know, yeah, you might have to back off just a little bit, but you'll move right back up and beyond in no time. Yeah, I want to pause here and, and kind of zoom in on a few of the things that you've touched on. So let's start with uh, what you just spoke to. So after you had that experience where you went a little bit too hard climbing and felt it flare up, what happens next? Did you take days off again or did you go right back to a gentler routine the next day? How would you guide someone through what to do next? So I would say, you know, look at your hand and see, you know, again, if we had that swelling there, then that probably means we need to leave it alone, maybe give it a day or two to rest. Because uh, the swelling is probably going to go during that time. And one thing I did to help out with the swelling, I haven't seen this anywhere, so it's purely anecdotal, but I would use the kinesio tape and I would just put it at the base of my finger. So it's kind of from you know, your knuckle down and... I think that helped out with the swelling just because that tape stretches. So kind of when you put it on, then it'll kind of stretch and kind of lift the skin up. And I know from doing some of the courses with the kinesio tape, they can show with an ultrasound, like when that tape's on there, you can see that there's more space between some of like the fascial layers and the muscle and between the skin and different things. So I think it might just kind of open things up so that the body can do what it needs to do to bring in stuff to heal and get the bad stuff out. Um, so that might be something that helps other people too. It seemed to really help me. And so pretty much after a day, I was able to start back on things. Um, and I, I really do feel like the eccentric, you know, lengthening contractions with the fingers, I felt like that was really helpful for me. And I haven't seen that from anybody else. I've seen it with the elbow, but I haven't seen it regarding finger injuries. Yeah. So that was the next thing I wanted to zoom in on. So you were using the tension block attached to a band looped around a pull-up bar and mm -hmm. pulling down into a lock-off position, uh, starting in a closed crimp position and then slowly relaxing your fingers to an extended position. Um, right. Were you just doing that one repetition at a time and then multiple times throughout the day? Or what did that I was, protocol look I like? I was doing about 10 reps um, okay. and I would probably do... I would try to get actually six sets in every day. Um, oh, sometimes wow. I'd only get three. So, you know, if I could, I try to get three in the morning, three in the evening. Um, you know, if it was on the weekend, I might do like two in the morning, two around lunch, two, you know, late afternoon. And so after I let it out in kind of that more extended position, a lot of times then I'd grab the block with my other hand, pull it so I could get in that full cramp position. So there was no no concentric contraction at all with the fingers. I would just kind of have that brief isometric and then let it go out there to that, you know, lengthen position. Other hand would help. After a certain point where it kind of felt good, then I would actually just kind of extend my arm so I could get in that closed cramp position and pull back that way. That way I'd get a little bit longer isometric contraction and then go into that eccentric contraction. And it seemed to work pretty well. Hmm. And then later on, you moved to the tension block attached to a weight and just did an, you know, isometrics like we would normally do with our hangboarding. Right. Isometrics and then just more of the kind of reps, too. So I would do kind of a mix of both longer isometrics and then also just, you know, having it with whatever weight. So try to get more strength, just kind of stand up. So the weight's off the ground, go back down, come back up and, and maybe only do like three to five. And, you know, initially it felt extremely easy wasn't a problem and like i said if it felt that way for a day or two then i'd 
go up another two and a half, five pounds and just kind of keep building up slowly like that until I got back to doing the weights that I was using before. Okay. And um, how did your frequency change over that time as you were increasing the load? Were you continuing to do it multiple times throughout the day or did that eventually change? The tension block with the strengthening, that was more just a once a day thing. Um, once it kind of got back to previous levels, then it probably more about every other day. Okay. Interesting. And and what is the thought process behind the, the eccentrics? You said you hadn't seen anyone else do that and you thought it worked really well. Um, do you have any theories or what was your thought process be behind doing that versus just starting with really gentle isometrics? Well, I, there's not, again, research I've seen regarding finger injuries, uh, but there is a lot of research regarding tendons and doing, it depends, either eccentrics or isometrics. You can find different protocols that are, that have benefits for tendon injuries. And, you know, some insist that it's got to be an eccentric contraction. Others seem to get the same results with isometrics. So I don't, I don't know that there's a big difference between the two. I think more than likely people are going to like one more than the other. And so that's probably going to work better for them. And again, like I said, I hadn't seen it with the fingers, so I just figured I'd experiment on myself and see what happened. Mm. Cool. This is really helpful. Um, I'd love to ask too, how would you think about approaching this depending on the type of finger injury? Like how much does it matter what the specific injury is? Like, would you do the same thing for a pulley that you would do with like a collateral ligament injury? Um, Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? In the beginning, I probably would do the same thing um, because what we're trying to do, or at least the way I kind of see it, we want to get some blood flow in there and tendons don't have a great blood supply. And so that's why we want to kind of move it and move it often. And we also, if there is a big injury to the other side of it, we want to prevent any scar tissue. There's going to be scar tissue there, but what we want is it to be laid down in a way that allows our finger to move and have full motion. Um, If we have an injury, there's tissue damage and scar tissue is being laid down and we're not moving, the way to kind of think about it is like if you got a box full of matches and you just dumped them all out, the matches are going to be pointing in all kinds of directions. Hmm. And so, you know, if you've got all these fibers going all these different directions, it's not going to stretch or move very well. And so that's where putting that load, that tension on the tissue actually helps to start to align those fibers in the right direction so that it can move. Hmm. Um, And so that's part of the reason for doing things kind of often as well, kind of that low level, but real often to start with, and then building up to where it's a higher level less frequently. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's... Does that help out? Yeah, that's really helpful. And so, you know, if it's more that collateral ligament, you know, again... We, we got to be able to bend and move. And so I think, you know, maybe after a while doing some different things where you have more kind of that side to side motion in the fingers to where it will put a little more stress in that specific area. I think you'd be good to do that. Okay. Again, in a graded way, kind of starting real easy just to kind of see. And, you know, there's different exercises you could do, like just where you maybe put one one finger between two fingers and just kind of squeeze them together. That starts to work some of the lumbricals. And I mean, there's going to be you know, a little tension placed on those collateral ligaments in that way too. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> one question I have, and this is 
related to my own personal experience right now. So like you mentioned, I am rehabbing a A2 pulley and it's getting better and better. Um, I'm using a tension block in a similar way actually to do isometrics and I'm seeing the load go up, the, the load at which I can do like a strict half crimp or even a full crimp without any pain is mm-hmm. steadily increasing. So it's it's on the mend and it's not 100%, but it's it could be a lot worse. But I find that I'm throughout this whole thing, I can climb very hard actually in an open position without any pain. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if I should be doing that or if I'm dragging out the recovery process by continuing to do that. What are your thoughts on continuing to climb open hand in kind of my sort of situation? I think it's a good thing to do. That's what I would do. And you know, when I did climb, everything was pretty much open-handed, which I'm not the biggest cramper in the first place. I don't tend to like it. And they make fun of me at the gym because <laughs> I will just about open-hand everything that they're crimping. Um, so I think that's good. And, you know, I mean, Dave McLeod, he's got different blogs talking about it too. You know, if, if it lets you climb and you're not having pain, I think it's a good thing. Cause again, I do think we're going to be getting some of the blood flow in there and, that's going to help to bring in the nutrients and supplies your body needs for that healing process. Mm. It's also going to take, take out those byproducts that need to be taken out. Cool. Okay. I want to take us back to Mike and Mike's elbow, the chronic pain in his elbow, see if we can offer more specific guidance or if you had more specific thoughts for him when you were listening to him talk about all that. But I also noticed that, I mean, I kind of derailed us. I think you were talking about um, some of the early things that you can do or the, the very entry-level stages if you really are dealing with serious chronic pain. We talked about the Recognize app and then right. visualization and then mm-hmm. using a mirror to kind of trick your brain into thinking that the the painful limb is moving without pain, if I'm right. understanding that correctly. So um, I'm, I'm curious, did we skip over anything there that we should return to before, before pressing no, on? No, that's pretty much the basics with that. Um, and just your know, one aside with the mirror therapy, there are different things where they've used that for people after an amputation. And it's, you will get, have some stories where it's kind of this miraculous phantom limb pain, just completely gone after one time. Wow. Um, you know, that's not always the case by any means, but you know, it kind of goes to show just how powerful the brain is. And, you know, if it sees things as being safe, you know, it can make a huge difference. So you're using a mirror to make it look as though you have that that limb, other, that limb that's amputated? Right. That is so fascinating. <laughs> I wonder, do you have like a, a video that we could reference for mirror, mirror therapy or just to gain a visual? There's got to be one. Works? I'll look and find one. Okay. Uh, I can't think of one just off the top of my head. But yeah, there's there's got to be plenty with it. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to see it for myself, but I'd also love to to share that in the show notes. Sure. But yeah, okay. So so cool. It seems like we've gotten through uh, most of the bullet points here. Feel free to touch on anything that we skipped over. But, um, but yeah, if, if we're ready to move on, I'd love to jump back towards Mike and maybe specific elbow recommendations. I know that you, you were recovering from an elbow issue as well, correct? Yes. Yeah, so I had right hand, so right middle finger, and left elbow. So, mm. yeah, I had to make sure that both arms had something. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> so, uh, I like, well, just a reference for everybody, too. Um, Dave McLeod's book, Make or Break, 
think that's the title. Mm-hmm. Um, it's his injury book. It's got a lot of good information. Um, and so, I mean, that's a good place to start. And so I think with the elbow, if it's that medial elbow pain, part of the problem there sometimes is figuring out, okay, is it more of the flexor tendon itself or is it more the pronator teres? Um, so, you know, flexion is just, you know, bringing your hand kind of towards that side of your forearm, um, you know, or up towards your bicep and kind of bending it. And then pronation is where instead of your palm being face down or that's your palm being face down and supination is where your palms face up. And so the different protocols kind of for that are to use eccentrics to start with. And so, you know, have your kind of wrist in that fully flexed position and use your other hand to help it get there, hold that weight, and then just very slowly let the weight and the hand go back into an extended position. And I believe on that too, you want to do like 15 reps. And again, you want a whole bunch of reps done during the day because we're trying to we're trying to irritate that tissue really in a sense so that we kind of get that inflammation to come in and kind of start that healing process. And then we also are getting that area stronger and better able to withstand anything that's done. Um, So again, you know, like three sets of 15, two to three times during the day and taking, you know, five, 10 seconds to lower the weight would probably be a pretty good start. And then you can do that same thing to work the pronator Terry. So with that, you'd have like an empty dumbbell, um, probably to start with, yeah, just an empty dumbbell. Uh, So I have like an Olympic dumbbell, so it's got the fatter handles or, you know, for the weights to go on. Um, And so that means it weighs a little bit more at that top end than just the standard size dumbbells. And so I would just start with that and just, you know, slowly have that kind of pointing, that dumbbell pointing straight up in my hand and then gradually let my hand rotate back to where my palm's up. And I think one of the keys with this that I noticed, at least for myself, is making sure that you have the range of motion for your palm to be completely up. Um, I I think on that left one, I lost a little bit of range of motion. And so I wasn't able to fully pronate. And I think that was part of the problem with it kind of lasting as long as it did. Hmm. And so luckily, being a therapist, I was able to do some different joint mobilizations and things to kind of get that motion back real quick and easy. Um, and so after a while too, what I'd noticed, at least for me, is I switched. Uh, instead of doing the eccentrics, I started adding more weight to it. Um, but then I'd actually do kind of the slow eccentric to get in that position. And then I'll try to hold it there for a minute. Hmm. And that seemed to be the key for me of getting rid of that last little bit of the issue. And so for me, I, I do the flexion part. Um, and so kind of, you know, slowly doing those eccentrics there, the pain with that went away within a few weeks. And so, I mean, I could do, you know, now I can do wrist curls with 40 pounds or more, you know, 10, 12 times, and I don't have any problem. But the pronation part that stuck around a little bit longer was a little more problematic. Um, but within a couple of weeks of being consistent with isometrics, you know, three sets, you know, twice a day, it went away too. and well, that feels good. Hmm. Heath, I'd love to, uh, to share a protocol, share a resource with this protocol or, or at least some videos of these exercises if we can. 
in the show notes for people because I, I think I'm following okay. you, but it is a little bit, it's always hard to visualize or, or uh, follow along just trying to right. uh, picture these things. Right. And I know there's pictures in Dave's book. And then I believe there's an article online, um, Dr. Saunders, I believe, has one where it talks about the you know, eccentric flexion and also the eccentric pronation. And it should have pictures there too. Okay. So yeah, I can get that to you. Perfect. One thing I'm really curious about, and, and I hope we can, I, I'm looking for good news for myself, and I'm hoping that we can kind of share like a, a final uh, message of good news for listeners here. But I remember in Mike's case, you know, he was saying the way he understood his injury is that the tendon's never going to 100% heal, like there's going to be a partial tear there. But the good news is that you can strengthen that remaining tissue just the way that you strengthen any other part of your body when you're strength training, things like that. And mm -hmm. it, it can eventually become as strong or stronger than it was before. Um, same with my fingers. I mean, I had a pretty serious A2 poly injury years ago, and I remember really freaking out about it, like thinking, is this ever going to be like, you know, I, I think I tore part of that pulley. Uh, from what I understand, it's going to be repaired with scar tissue that might get more collagen laid down on it over time, but is it ever going to be as strong as the actual pulley tissue? And I've managed to prove to myself over the years by continuing to hangboard and measuring the numbers and everything and keeping track that, oh yeah, like that finger is stronger than it's ever been and uh, mm -hmm. I have no pain in it. So I, I'd love to hear how you think about or, or how you understand uh, tissue damage like that and, you know, reaching a point maybe with chronic pain where the tissue is healed as much as it's going to, but then what can we do to uh, prevent a recurring injury and make the, the tissues either heal more completely or become more robust in their current state, whatever, whatever it is. But yeah, I'll throw all that at you. <laughs> sure. So, I mean, I guess the best way is to not get injured in the first place. Uh, the problem with that is, you know, if you're an athlete, in any sport or if you're a climber you're going to push yourself and so there's going to come a point where you're going to get injured um and so then i think kind of what we talked about earlier with the you know really kind of taking control of our thoughts and the way we speak can make a big difference uh, there's just a whole bunch of power that we have with that and we can kind of use it for good or use it for evil and so, you know, like you said, you were worried about that finger and you're like, oh, no, am I ever going to be able to do things again? You will ever be as strong. You know, that kind of puts that threatening environment in there. And so, you know, that makes it less likely for that to happen. So I think when we do get injured, you know, let's just understand what it is. OK, I got injured. This isn't the end of the world. And, you know, we can spend some time trying to figure out, OK, what led to it? And that way we can kind of build up a plan to avoid those things in the future. So we make it less likely to get injured again. But again, the key with that is to kind of look at that, but in a non-judgmental way, instead of, you know, oh, I didn't want it like I should have. Oh, I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. You know, again, that's kind of that negative side. Let's just like, okay, so yeah, I didn't quite warm up enough. So, okay, next time I'll make sure, you know, I feel really good and my hands are nice and ready and I'm, you know, I'm ready to go. There's, there's not an issue anymore. And, don't beat yourself up because you didn't that one time. Hmm. Um, once the damage is there, then, you know, let's try to be smart too in that rehab process. And, you know, if there is inflammation going on, let's give that a little bit of time to pass. So, you know, just a couple of days, but then let's start moving and moving in a way that's not threatening to the body um, and to the brain. 
And so if we can do that, we're going to start to retrain things. And then that's going to allow us to kind of progress and prevent that chronic pain ever being there. So I guess kind of prevention is the biggest thing. If you can do that, you're well ahead of the game. So, but let's say you've already got that injury. It's already been a long time. It's been three, six months. At that point, yes, it's probably healed about as well as it's going to heal. I don't know this for a fact, but I'm wondering if we can put some stress. So like I said, with the elbow, you know, I do wonder if I'm sure there was some tendon damage that occurred there. But I do wonder if by putting that strain on it, because, I mean, it hurt a little bit when I was doing those exercises, especially to start. But I think that was a good thing that it was kind of putting some strain on that area where there was some damage, but it was starting to kind of provoke healing and inflammation. And so I, I wonder if we can actually have those areas that maybe aren't fully healed, do something with exercises to kind of stimulate it to heal more than what it has before to where then we do have good tissue. At the very least, yes, we can get everything else strong enough to where we don't even notice that anymore. Mm. And so, you know, I think that's a thing to look at. You know, there's been a ton of you know football players, basketball players where they've had, you know, Achilles tendon ruptures, uh, ACL tears, and then they come back and play and they're even better than they were before. Mm. So, you know, just because we do have an injury or we have this major thing that happened, it definitely doesn't mean it's the end of the world. We're never going to do things again. You know, if we see it kind of as this opportunity to learn and grow, we can kind of go to where we were and even beyond. And so that's where I think we just need to understand. We don't often give our bodies enough credit. Um, our bodies are great at doing things. Um, sometimes we need to get out of the way because I think we limit it just by our thoughts and our beliefs. And, you know, the negativity there makes a big you know, difference in that. So if we can be positive. We kind of set the groundwork for the body to do what it's really good at doing. And then we can just follow its lead. And so then in this case, you know, we have that injury, we can actually come back stronger. And that's kind of that definition of anti-fragile. Um, people talk a lot about wanting to be resilient. Resiliency is good, but kind of the definition of it means that basically you withstand something. So, you know, you have this injury or something that occurs and then you bounce back to where you were. But you know, we want to go beyond that. We want to take whatever comes at us, but then we want to go further and go past where we were. We don't want to just bounce back to it. And our bodies are able to do that. And one thing we didn't talk about was kind of the neuroplasticity. And one thing David Butler and Laura Mosley will talk about is kind of expanding that to bioplasticity. Um, most people know about neuroplasticity and just kind of, especially like with young children, if they have an issue with their brain, um, how it can kind of start to accommodate and kind of make different pathways to be able to do the same thing instead of using that tissue that's either damaged or not there. Um, you know, that does not work quite as well the older we get, but there's still a lot of, there's a lot of potential there, but that potential also occurs in our other tissues. And that's why they're kind of switching to using that term bioplasticity versus just neuro and nerves and brain. And so, you know, our muscles can, they can regenerate and, you know, I mean, they grow, we tear them down with training and then they grow bigger and stronger. Um, you know, our bones is you're placing more stress on them. You know, they get more dense so that they can withstand it. Uh, so, you know, our body's great at adapting to things and it's not, 
as fragile as we think it is sometimes. Mm. It's a powerful message. I'm curious. I'd love to take it back to your injuries right now. And um, are, are you fully recovered from the elbow and the finger? Are you still in the yes. process? Yes, I was able to climb another V7 and V8 on the moon board <laughs> last week. So, yes, I am back to the level I was at before. Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. So talking about um, becoming anti-fragile, I'd love to hear what are some of the things that you are thinking about or focusing on or inco- incorporating into your routine to prevent uh, future issues with either fingers or elbow injuries. Has anything changed in your uh, routine from this experience? Yes. Uh, So what I've decided, one, I try to make sure I'm talking positively to myself, not getting down about things. Um, You know, when I did have the flare up, same thing, like, okay, this is fine. This isn't anything to worry about. Um, You know, I had that first twinge of, oh no. And then it's like, wait a minute. It's okay. I could tell you this isn't some huge thing. And, yeah, that's where I think I grew up playing sports and if people have been climbing for a while or they grew up playing other sports, they probably can read the signals their body's telling them and they kind of know if something's serious or not. Um, and that can kind of help out with what we talked about earlier about whether to see a therapist or somebody to make sure about things. Um, you know, again, if you're ever in doubt, it's better just to go do it and see, then you have that peace of mind at least. Um, but what, so what I'm going to try, I guess my experiment on this now is, I'm going to keep, so now I'm doing active uh, wrist flexion. So I'm going to do the wrist curls and, you know, I'll add weight when it gets too easy, but I'm going to do like one set pretty much every day. Hmm. Um, And then for the, so right now still with the pronation, I'm still trying to do like two to four sets every day. Um, As that continues just to, I feel more comfortable with it. I don't feel like there's going to be an issue. Then I'll go down to doing you know, one set a day of that too, hopefully to prevent anything from happening. Um, and I'm going to keep doing the eccentrics for the fingers, you know, so that closed cramp position to an open position um, and, you know, add more weight to it so that it gets stronger. So, yeah, I mean, now I'm using like a big, thick blue band, you know, from like Rogue Fitness or one of those places. and I'm only using like the 10 millimeter edge on the tension block and, you know, we'll do like 10 of those and that's, that's pretty easy. So I'm about to go up on the weight on that, hmm. but I'm, I'm hoping by continuing to do some of those eccentrics and isometrics that it's going to help keep building that tissue up and help make it resistant to it. Um, there's a lot of, I also did some sprinting. So there's a lot of research in sprinting for like hamstring pulls and they would do eccentric Nordics or glute ham rays and you know, isometrics and different things to help heal that and get that tissue stronger. And it seemed to help prevent, you know, further injuries later on. Um, the other thing I've done too, uh, there's been some talk about it in different circles, uh, using collagen and vitamin C. Um, Keith Barr has done a lot of research on that. And I know there was a YouTube clip uh, where the Hainboard protocol with a mill and, you know, there's some people like, I don't know if that's really helpful or not. I'm not sure, but it doesn't hurt anything. And one of their criticisms was in that paper that he referenced that it was all done like in a test tube, basically. I I understand the reservations with that because we don't know if things that happen in a test tube are going to happen in our bodies because then there's a whole lot more going on in our bodies. Mm. But I do believe there's some research from Keith Barr working with like basketball players with patellar tendon issues 
and doing that same kind of protocol uh, with the collagen and vitamin C 30 minutes to an hour before exercising, you know, doing like 10 minutes or so of exercise and then doing that again six hours later. And it did help that tendon to heal much quicker and a lot stronger. Interesting. So I've done that as well. Okay. Perfect. I actually have one thing on my list here is to ask you about uh, any diet and lifestyle things that we can do to help ourselves out, you know, during the recovery stage. And then maybe more generally, if you have thoughts on that. But uh, I want to pause that for one second before we dig into that. I'm curious, you know, referring to the eccentrics that you're continuing to do on the fingers and the, uh, the pronation, the different wrist exercises that you're continuing to do. Would you recommend those for everybody, you know, people that haven't had any of these specific injuries or, or issues if they're devoted climbers? Or maybe another question is if someone is supplementing their climbing with some strength training, are there any like big bang for your buck exercises that you think would cover would cover us? Or yeah, what are your thoughts on that? I'm not sure. I guess is my best answer. I think it, everybody's different. And so, you know, it's hard to give information or advice that's going to fit everybody. Um, I mean, I think in general, what would probably work for most people, I think doing to prevent injury, we got to keep some muscle balance and climbers are notorious for having those imbalances. Our backs are strong (laughs) and chest as weak as can be. And really kind of the shoulders themselves aren't that balanced. Like, you know, the back, your rear delt, that's pretty strong from a lot of the pulling, but a lot of the like overhead or front delt, middle delt might not be quite there. Um, So, I mean, I think some of your general strength exercises, overhead press, you know, bench press, not going crazy, but, you know, just making sure you do those consistently. I think you keep some of that balance there between the back. And then I think that's going to help prevent injury because, I think it'll help performance too, just because you don't have your brain kind of trying to put a governor on you and kind of slow you down because it knows there's this huge imbalance and it's not good. I've heard Steve Bechtel talk about that. That's really fascinating. Yeah, there's there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, And you see, you know, some general guidelines for things um, like with, you know, sprinters, there's differences with the hamstring and the quads, Um, you know, most people's quadriceps are going to be stronger than their hamstrings, but I think you still want hamstrings, if I remember right, like two thirds or something. Um, and so, you know, I don't know what the stats are, the ratios are for chest and back. And, you know, I don't think climbers need to start trying to have this, you know, huge chest like Arnold had, <laughs> but, you know, just doing something. So there's some movement going on there. And then just, you know, as it gets easy, yeah, go ahead and add a little bit of weight. Don't make that the focus of your workout, but it's going to happen just because you're moving and doing mm. it. It's going to get stronger, and then you can add some weight to it, and then you can just kind of maintain and be good. Um, I do think probably you know, either doing actively the wrist flexion, wrist extension, and the pronation, supination, I do think those are good exercises due to try to prevent injury too. Um, yeah, if people, again, I kind of like the a little bit, often. So I think, you know, one set basically every day, or maybe on the days you're climbing or working out doing, you know, two or three sets, then I think you can, you get a lot of benefit from that and doesn't have to add a whole lot of, a whole lot more time to your training and different things like that. I was going to ask with that, what are your thoughts on like the, the TheraBand bar? I keep one of those in the van just because I'm a huge fan of 
simplicity and I don't have a lot of room. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I think you can kind of mimic at least most of those exercises. What are your thoughts on using a tool like that? I've never used it. Okay. So unfortunately, I don't have too many thoughts on it. I've seen a lot of other people recommend it and use it. So, you know, as long as you can get those movements and those activities in there, I don't see where it could hurt. Okay. You know, I don't, I definitely don't see it being a problem by any means. I just can't give you firsthand experience on what I thought about it. So, sorry. Sure. That's fine. Okay. And then as far as the fingers, if someone's a, you know, a devoted climber, they're maybe a regular hangboarder or they've done a lot of that in the past. What are your thoughts on just including some kind of movement with the fingers, whether that's your eccentrics that you described, or I know finger ups are a little bit better known, you know, like pulling your fingers mm -hmm. into a crimp position and then relaxing back out. Um, what are your thoughts on keeping that as kind of a staple part of our training diet? I think it's probably who knows, uh, you know, for me, it seems to work really well. So I guess what I would say is for people to try it, you know, again, start like at a really low level, probably one that seems way too easy hmm. and then kind of keep building up from there and just see what you notice. Um, so for me, it seems to make my fingers a whole lot healthier. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't feel any soreness in my hands after climbing. Um, and I mean, I've pushed myself fairly hard in the past couple of weeks and I haven't, you know, my skin's kind of tired from, and you're getting raw from sliding off the holds. <laughs> but as far as, you know, tendons and like being able to close my hands or even having stiffness like the next morning when you first wake up trying to close, I don't have any of those problems. And I'm older and I'm a, I'm bigger for a climber. So I would say if it's working for me at 43, um, 6'2", about 190, 195 pounds, that it probably could help out other people too. That's awesome. Um, so let's get to the diet and lifestyle things. Was okay. I had I had that in my notebook from our previous conversation. Was there anything that we haven't talked about there that you want to touch on? Sure. Um, one of the so I guess one of the things that can lead to the brain being more sensitive and to any of that input coming in is inflammation like we talked about earlier. And in this case, it's more of that chronic low-grade systemic inflammation. And so that's where gut health comes into play because uh, a lot of times people have issues with their gut and they don't even know it. Um, you know, the, it's common for people to have irritable bowel syndrome or to have some kind of food sensitivity or allergy. All those things lead to inflammation there in our gut. And then, you know, that can lead to other places. And there's a gut-brain connection um, that's kind of talked about sometimes in a more abstract connection, not a literal connection, but there is actually a literal connection from our brain to our gut too with the vagus nerve. And so you know, the more stressed we are, uh, we're in that fight, flight, or freeze state, then we're not going to be able to rest and digest, which is more of that parasympathetic state. And so in that case, you know, the vagus nerve is going to have the heart pumping harder, you know, increasing blood flow and our blood pressure so that we can fight off something, run away from something. And what a lot of people don't understand is actually when people freeze during those states, it's really that same amount of energy that's being used by the body, even though they're not moving or doing anything active. Um, Hmm. And so 
Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, but yeah, a lot of a lot of work's being done by the body to keep you that still. Um, and That's so interesting. <laughs> it's it, there's a lot of crazy things, and uh, there's some taught that that seems to be why we as humans have a lot more trouble sometimes dealing with trauma. Um, you know, animals can go in that free state, and then once it's safe, they'll get up, they'll shake violently, and then run off. And so they're kind of able to dissipate all that energy, whereas we don't, whether we don't because we don't want people to think we're crazy or we don't feel comfortable doing it or whatever. If for whatever reason we don't, and then we kind of keep all that inside and it tends to play out in a lot of physical ways, you know, with health issues and different things. Hmm. Um so, you know, I would say, like I said, gut health is a big thing there. And so just kind of paying attention to how your body responds to food can make a big difference. So, you know, if you're getting bloated and you're having issues with bowel movements afterwards, then that's probably your body telling you that, hey, I don't really want this food anymore. Um, and so, you know, that can make a big difference. Another thing that people are often surprised about when I work with them is I get them to go to a more low carb type diet. And that often greatly decreases their pain levels too. Well, um, that's so interesting. Yeah, carbohydrates will get turned to. So most people they hear that they're well, I don't eat sugar, but they're eating a lot of rice, pasta, and other things. Like, well, you're still getting a lot of sugar in your body, um, and the carbohydrates and the sugar is pro-inflammatory, and especially for our nerves. And so, again, that's just going to kind of excite that nervous system. So then any input that comes in, the brain's going to be much more likely to say, oh, okay, we got too much going on. We need to protect. You know, we need to cut down on something. Mm. So, yeah, one man I treated, um, he actually, well, he was funny. He was a bigger guy. He'd had a low knee amputation on one side and a partial foot amputation on the other. And I, he was asking one day kind of about, losing weight and different things and just health. And I said, well, you're diabetic. And he said, no, I'm not. You know, the doctors told me I'm not anymore. And yeah, just by looking at him, I was pretty confident he was. And I said, well, do you still have your glucometer? And he said, yes. I said, all right, well, tomorrow morning, check it before you eat. And so I went back, you know, a couple of days later and I asked him, I was like, well, did you check your blood sugar? And he said, yes, it was, you know, 146. And I said, okay, you're diabetic. Like I said, <laughs> um, and he's like, all right, fine. So what do I do? And so what I put him on um, just was more of, a, again, a low-carb diet, and it's a carb night. Um, so the guy who wrote the book dealing with it can be a little controversial, um, but he has some good information. So I can give you a link to that book, too. But the general idea is you eat very, very low-carb, like six and a half days of the week, and then on that seventh day that night, you can eat whatever you want. And so what I told him to do was, you know, basically eat protein and non-starchy vegetables during the day for six and a half days. And then on that, you know, night, that seventh night, he could eat whatever he wanted. I didn't care if it was cake or anything else because um, that helps him to not feel too deprived or anything. Mm. And so he did that. I think it was only two weeks. And within two weeks, he had already lost eight pounds and he was like, I'm not hungry. I said, well, good. I wasn't you know, wanting you to starve yourself. And he's like, so how did I lose weight if I'm not hungry? It's like, <laughs> I think as the body gets healthy, it can kind of do what it needs to do. Because with other people I've done this with, you know, they needed to gain weight and they did the same thing and they, you know, would put on five pounds. Um, so, you know, again, I think our bodies can kind of do what it needs to as long as we get out of the way. 
Um, the other things he said, he didn't realize he was having problems like going to the bathroom, but he noticed he wasn't having, you know, it's a whole lot easier now. So he was so used to before he didn't even realize it was an issue. And then he had neuropathy pain, um, from being diabetic previously. And then, and he said he can stand up, he can extend his legs and he doesn't get that pain like he used to. And then the other thing, his blood sugar was down in the nineties in two weeks. Wow. His fasting blood sugar went from 140s to 90s? Yes. That is fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, you know, the changes won't always be that quick. You know, it it kind of depends on how long they've been there, what else is going on. So, I mean, there's all kinds of variables. Stress is a big thing that's going to affect health, and it's also going to affect pain. The more stressed you are, the more pain you're going to have. And that's where it kind of confuses people a lot of times because, like, I didn't do anything. Why am I hurting more? Mm. But when you go back and kind of look, it's, well, they're also dealing with, you know, all these family issues, health issues with, you know, loved ones, different things like that. Mm. So this is this is so interesting. I know nutrition isn't necessarily your area of uh, expertise, but I, I do want to get your thoughts on this because I've had conversations about this stuff a number of times on the show, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. getting the... Um, the overwhelming message from people who know a lot more about this stuff than me that we shouldn't be afraid of carbs if we're metabolically healthy healthy, and we're athletes, especially if we're getting those carbs from high quality nutrient dense sources like whole foods, things like that. I'm curious how you think about that. How would you think about balancing everything that you just said as far as, you know, carbs and inflammation? How would you balance that with the needs of a, a climber, an athlete, et cetera? It's that's again kind of one of those tricky things where probably the best answer is it depends. Um, Everybody's different. Um, So, you know, I don't, I definitely don't think everybody needs to be on a strict ketogenic diet and you're never having any carbohydrates, um, especially most athletes. You know, some endurance athletes that might have some beneficial effects um, for climbers and more power athletes, uh, depending on the time frame of things. I think the more cyclical ketogenic diet, so kind of more like the carb night, um, where you don't maybe have carbs every single day, but you still have them in at certain points. That way you refill muscle glycogen, liver glycogen. I think you can still have a lot of the same benefits and not have some of the negatives. So mm-hmm. I think you know you can still perform very well and maybe even better, but yet not have the carbs in all the time where it's a problem for health or for inflammation. Um, so I think I'll get into the weeds just a little bit. Uh, so feel free to stop me at any point. Oh, um, I love it. Let's do it. So I, I, I do like nutrition a lot, and that is a big part of the functional medicine side of things. Um, so there's some different... Theories, I guess, you know, it's, again, hard to kind of prove a lot of things in science. But one thing is, you know, we know the mitochondria produce energy for the cells. And so that's kind of what they're known as being the little powerhouses. But they also play a big role for our immune system, too. And that's some newer information that's coming out um, with, like, cell danger response and Dr. Navio. And so what I guess at least we're kind of seeing and I guess trying to prove is it looks like sometimes the mitochondria get damaged because there's just too much fuel available, especially with the standard American diet. It tends to be 
kind of higher in fat and higher in carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of too much energy available and that can maybe lead to the mitochondria getting a little bit damaged, which then means the cells not performing well enough. And if you get enough cells not performing well enough, well, then the tissue's not performing, that organ's not performing, you know, different things like that. So I guess one way to think about it too, and the reason why fat can be so helpful for a lot of people, and especially from an energy standpoint too, um, you know, one molecule of fat can go through the mitochondria and the electron transport chain. Again, don't worry about all that. Just know it's part of the way the body's producing energy to produce ATP. If I remember correct, it's like 106 to, I think some studies might even say like 116 molecules of ATP from that one fat molecule. Um, oh, wow. I may be off a little bit with the numbers, but it's a good bit. And then like one sugar molecule, so one glucose molecule, you know, it produces like 24. Hmm. So it's a drastic difference in the amount of energy you can get from the fat. And the difference though, that fat's kind of this more long, slow burning thing. Uh, so those, that's why I say like for endurance athletes where it's a, not a real high output, but it's a very long activity that fat's probably a better option to use for fuel. Um, but you know, in climbing, so yeah, I just boulder. Um, so I don't think I need huge amounts of carbohydrates because I'm not on the wall that long. And so I think, you know, having that cyclical ketogenic diet where I get the carbs in, you know, one, two, maybe three times a week, it's going to keep those glycogen stores filled in my muscles to where it can perform at high levels when I need it to, you know, for someone who's doing more routes or, you know, multi-pitch they might need a little more carbohydrates than I need based on what they're doing. You know, they, they might have more times where they're having to, you know, do explosive moves, you know, or at least fairly explosive moves more often. Whereas, you know, for me with bouldering, I'm going to get on there, try something. It's probably going to be done within 20 seconds, if not sooner. And, you know, especially if I fall, it's going to be done a lot sooner. And then I'm going to rest for a lot of you know, several minutes before I get back on there again. So I'm not really kind of getting into that lactic territory at all. Um, you're staying way out of it. But people that are doing a lot longer climbs, you know, a few minutes, you know, they're going to be more in that range. And so they may need a little more carbohydrates to be able to function well. Okay. And I think you can kind of play with it and kind of see where you need to be. And it's similar to kind of what um, Dave McLeod was talking about on your podcast with you, you know, that, he eats a fair bit of carbohydrates while following a you know fairly ketogenic diet. Um, and so, you know, so he was, I think saying maybe he eats like a hundred grams of carbs or so every day. Yeah. I so I right. don't, I don't do that, but what I probably average for the week is pretty similar. So I think it's just kind of different ways of doing the same thing. So yeah, I'll, I'll maybe do one or two days, but I'll probably have, you know, three or 400 grams of carbohydrates that night. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I would wonder what your thoughts are on this. So something I've, you know, I'm I'm such a geek about this stuff. I'm always experimenting and I still feel like I'm kind of dialing in what I like, what works for me, what's, you know, mm -hmm. a good balance of performance and long-term health, things like that. But um, something I'm kind of gravitating towards is, you know, like a kind of a daily allotment of 100 or 200 grams of carbs per day. But I'm I'm kind of mm -hmm. thinking about going more and more polarized with that based on climbing days versus rest days. So on a climbing or training day, because I usually climb three or four days a week and not a lot more often than that. 
mm-hmm. you know, maybe go on the higher side, 200 grams of carbs on a day like that or more, and then really back off drastically on those in-between days. Do, do you think, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you, you seem to know a lot more about this than I do. I'm curious if there's any downsides to that, if, if you compromise your body's ability to burn glucose efficiently, effectively. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts? So I guess depending on goals, I think that can work really well. Um, and so for performance, I think that's a good thing. And so that guy, Kiefer, I told you about with Carb Night, basically what you're describing is what he calls carb backloading and wrote a book on. So I'm sharing his information. This isn't my own, so I don't want to take credit for it. Um, and so he works, or at least he used to, he'd work with power lifters, bodybuilders, fitness competitors. And so... You know, a lot of times I think as climbers, we don't want to look towards bodybuilding or anything to get information from, but you know, I mean, as far as, cause we're afraid to get big. <laughs> well, yeah. Everybody's like, Oh, well, I don't want to get huge. Well, I understand that, but I mean, they know how to get you know, big, they, you know, you know, power lifters definitely know how to get strong. So we can kind of combine some things there, but yeah, the other thing with the bodybuilders, they know how to lose fat and keep muscle. Mm. And, you know, if we're wanting to climb really well, then, you know, there's probably some things we can learn from them. And, you know, I mean, I know there's drugs involved in, you know, some of the <laughs> upper levels, especially with bodybuilding, powerlifting. But, you know, I mean, there's still a lot of things that were being done a long time before the drugs became so prevalent. too. Mm. So, you know, we can learn things. And so, yeah, what you're saying, like I said, is kind of this car backloading. Because <clears throat> when we exercise there's different changes that occur, you know, with our metabolism to where it allows us to kind of use those carbohydrates in a much better way to refill glycogen stores again with our liver and our muscles. And so then, you know, when we kind of take those carbohydrates in after exercise, it's going to primarily go those places where we want it to versus going places where we don't. So we can Mm. kind of get all the benefits and not some of the consequences. I would say for a lot of people, so if someone, let's just say that they have a decent bit of body fat they want to lose, they could probably do the car backloading and they probably will lean out some as long as they're not just eating crazy amounts of food. Um, But there's probably going to come a point where they kind of lean out as far as they can and they can't get leaner. And then that's where doing the carb night so you're not having the carbs as often can kind of help out and you know, kind of getting even leaner. Okay. So that's why I say, you know, it depends on your goals a little bit. If you're really just focusing on performance, I think you can do what you said and you'll figure out the levels where you need to be to where, you know, you're not putting on too much weight or anything like that or losing too much either to where it's affecting performance. Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like you gravitate towards the carb night approach and you go almost no carb or very low carb most of the days of the week. And then one or two nights you, you go heavier on carbs. It depends. Yeah, it depends on where I'm at. So, you know, we're getting close to summertime. So sure. Let me go ahead and lean out a little bit for when we go to the beach and that kind of thing. <laughs> so I'll do more of a carb night at that time. Um, but yeah, the other times it's more of a carb backloading. And do you notice any performance difference when, let's say you're doing the carb night thing and you're bouldering two or three days a week or whatever your schedule is, do you notice a difference on different days? Like, are you more depleted on, on certain days depending on the schedule? Yes. So if I'm doing a strict carb night (laughs) and I'm not having those carbs, so, and what happens sometimes, well, okay. Let me go back. So, yes, I will notice the difference. <laughs> if I'm doing a strict carb night, just having the carbs once a week, you know, 
by the time it's getting towards the end of the week and it's time to have that carb night, uh, there is that different kind of fatigue when your muscle glycogen has just been depleted. Hmm. Um, I don't really know how to describe it, but once you experience it, you know what it is. And so then I know like, okay, I'm not going to be able to pull as hard. I'm not going to be able to climb as you know hard. I'm not going to be able to lift as heavy a weight and I'm going to get tired. So I will notice that if I, and so if I start getting you know to very lean stage two, I will notice, you know, I don't have the same energy then. And so it, it will have a decrease in performance. Um, you know, it's not like I go from V8 down to V3 or something, but <laughs> you know, it's just, it's definitely more work kind of doing the V7, V8. Um, if I'm doing, so let's say I get to that point where I do notice I'm getting really depleted and maybe even like fat loss stalls. Then sometimes what I'll do is I'll add another carb spike in during the week. And a lot of times that will actually help to improve performance, but it also helped kind of respark some of the fat loss too. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. So sometimes it kind of goes against what you think. Um, you know, it's not always that way, but sometimes you, you got to add something back in and that's actually what helps kind of get the body going again. Hmm. And are you thinking about um, macros? Are you counting any of that stuff at all? Are you counting calories every day or amount of protein or anything else? No, I do my best to try to keep clients from having to really count things too much. Because, um, I mean, I don't want to count my food all the time. And yeah. I don't want food to be this thing that you're having to think that much about. So I want, I want to get it to where it's something that can just be more natural and more free. Um, that's one of the issues I, I see sometimes with the functional medicine side that with a lot of the elimination diets and different things, I think they can be very helpful, but sometimes the unwanted consequence of that is it scares people. You mm. know, so they get scared of eating foods and thinking that they can't have it and their body is going to respond so poorly to it. Whereas, you know, I want people to be able to eat as many different foods as they can, you know, as long as it's good for their body. And so you know, that's why kind of paying attention to how your body responds, you can figure out what your body likes and a lot of times, even though you might be sensitive to something, you can still eat it, but just maybe in a smaller quantity. So, you know, let's say like nightshades are a problem. So, you know, have maybe just a few mushrooms, don't have mushrooms and artichokes and, you know, all kinds of nightshades all at once in one meal. Hmm. And, you know, that way you can kind of still eat the things you like and kind of not have the problems with it. So, yeah, I don't track those kinds of things. So, and what I'll have my clients track is more, more so just how they feel after they eat. And so, I, you know, I might have them write down everything for a while just to kind of figure that out. But once they've got it figured out, I don't want them writing everything down again. Um, Cause you know, I want food to be enjoyable and not something that's loathsome. Um, so <laughs> just in, in general for me, I try to get around a pound, uh, a gram of protein per pound of body weight. Um, so you know, if I get 180 to 200, I know I'm in that ballpark and I'm good. You know, if it's a little bit lower, I'm not going to freak out about it or be too concerned. If I'm, again, on that kind of low carb day, I try to keep it like 30 grams or below on oh, those wow. days. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really low, um, but I make sure I have, you know, a lot of good healthy fats in there. And so, I mean, it once you're used to it, it's not a problem as far as energy levels go. If you're used to burning carbohydrates for fuel and you go to this, 
there's definitely that transition period where your body's got to switch to being able to burn fat. Mm. Um, the good thing I think is that once you kind of make that and then your body can kind of do both. Mm. And so, you know, I don't, I don't notice after having the carbs that I'm more lethargic or anything like that. Um, you know, as long as I have them in the evening, it's funny if I eat them in the morning, you know, I'll, yeah, I want to go take a nap. <laughs> yeah, you know, so if go have a big like plate of pancakes or something, then yeah, the next that morning, you know, a couple hours later, I'm ready for a nap. So it does <laughs> kind of affect there, but it seems like at nighttime it, it doesn't have that same effect, or even if it does, you're going to bed anyway. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. And it sounds like kind of a weekly cheat meal, although there's different schools of thought on whether that language should be used. But uh but I'm curious, do you have any favorites? What do you like to go for when you're replenishing your glycogen at the end of the week? So I think on that, it depends. You know, if it's, if the glycogen is truly depleted, I feel like I'm in that state, then yeah, eating the not so healthy carbohydrates seem to work a whole lot better. <laughs> um, Interesting. And so I know that kind of goes against nutritional advice. So yeah, in that case, um, Krispy Kreme donuts can work really well. Um, nice. I, I, yeah, probably shouldn't be saying this on the podcast for everyone <laughs> to hear. But, um, you know, I mean, and I think we need to have those times where we kind of just enjoy things. Mm, and, and I think that's yeah. really good for our health. I mean, just from a mental standpoint, and, you know, if you're constantly worrying about food, you know, it's not good. And so one story I'll share with a lot of clients because, you know, they'll ask about different things. I tell them if they've got a birthday party coming up or you know, someone does, go enjoy it. You know, go eat the cake and have fun. You know, even if your body doesn't like it that much, it's probably going to be worse for your health for you to avoid it and feel kind of isolated and outcast from everybody than it is for me to eat that piece of cake, enjoy it, and then maybe be bloated for a couple hours. <laughs> um, you know, and as long as you're not doing that every day, every week, I think those negative effects are probably going to be pretty minimal. Um, and so, like, for me, if my wife and I, if we go see a movie, I'm getting popcorn at the movie theater and I'm going to drink a Coke with it. Mm. Um, and part of the reason I do that is when I was growing up, I'd go to the movies with my dad and we'd get popcorn and have a Coke. And my dad passed away a few years ago. So it's it's a good way to remember him and do things. And I don't worry one bit about it. Mm. You know, the, that benefit of that memory and everything that far outweighs any of the health consequences from having Coke and a big you know, bucket of popcorn at the movies, you know, a handful of times a year. Yeah. That's great. But yeah, if I'm not that depleted, then, then I will keep it more clean. So that's where, you know, potatoes, rice, that kind of stuff that it's funny. That's, that's what I kind of want then. But yeah, if I'm hmm. really, really gone, I need more just the crappy carbs, the sugar to help replenish <laughs> things. Got it. <clears throat> well, let's zoom out a little bit. Are there any other kind of go-to diet lifestyle interventions, recommendations that you have uh, when it comes to more of, you know, pain or recovery, things along those lines? So I think one thing that can help out from kind of a health standpoint, but also from a pain standpoint is breathing and meditation. Um, and, you know, on that, I think kind of whatever type of meditation people like, one of the biggest things I see with people is they just don't like to be still. And I think we need to get used to being still sometimes and not moving all the time. Hmm. Um, 
what you'll see a lot more with like chronic fatigue, um, autoimmune conditions, and chronic pain too. The kind of group of people it tends to affect the most often are your type A personalities. And it's because they kind of keep going and going and going and they never kind of rest and stop and let the body heal. And so I think meditation is kind of a good way to kind of learn to be still, kind of give your body some downtime. And it's a great way to kind of manage some of the stress that we just deal with every day. Uh, So I think a lot of people can get a lot of benefit from it, whether it's guided meditation, whether it's just thinking about how they're breathing. Uh, You know, I don't think it has to be any certain form. Uh, Whatever works for you, I think it's going to give you the benefit. Yeah. Any uh, any favorite apps or anything that you recommend for people that are looking for somewhere to get started? I like Headspace. Okay. Um, I like it because it's got a lot of different, uh, I guess, programs maybe is the best word. So it's got ones you know, like guided meditations for anxiety. It's got guided meditations for stress. It's got guided meditations for pain as well. Um, and so I think one other one thing I haven't said, but I think this needs to be said and I think it's the case whether people are dealing with a health issue, um, whether dealing with really any kind of issue, whether it's pain, it's health, or maybe they had you know this traumatic experience, is the first thing we have to do to be able to recover is we first have to accept where we are. Mm. And so I think there has to be this level of acceptance first, um, just that, okay, this is where I am and I'm going to be okay. And, you know, by that acceptance, I don't mean we resign ourselves to stay there and think that we're trapped. There is no hope. No, we just, we have to accept, okay, this is where I'm starting from and I can make a plan and you follow these steps and kind of get out of this. But if you don't have that first level of acceptance there, you're kind of fighting yourself this whole time. And from what I see, those people, they don't, get better. You know, their pain doesn't improve, their health doesn't improve. Mm. The people that do, you know, they do get better. Their pain may not go away completely, but, you know, instead of being that eight over 10, it goes down to this two over 10. Mm. You know, how much more can you do and enjoy life at two over 10 pain versus eight over 10? It makes a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, that does. And that's a, that's a powerful message. And I'm just thinking about my first finger injury that I had and it was a pretty serious one and it was right after really the the only period in my climbing that I can kind of point to as being a breakthrough like the only time I felt like holy shit I figured it out like I'm I something worked and my training worked and I'm awesome and I you know I'm I'm climbing things I never thought I could I'm really like blowing myself away by my performance and and Mm -hmm. so it was really disorienting you know i went from expectant and excited and anticipation to performing really well and just feeling ecstatic and elated and and having all this excitement for what it meant for the future to realizing oh i'm actually really injured and i overdid it and now i'm you know i have to kind of not start all over again but it faced this big setback and the hardest part of all of that was accepting what was And Mm -hmm. I really remember, (laughs) it's like all the stages of grief. I mean, I was really stuck in, uh, in denial for weeks and I made the injury a lot worse. And I think what could have been a, you know, a month 
maybe six week recovery turned into like a four month recovery because it it took me so long to simply accept where I was at. So, right. Yeah. And that, I mean, it sounds easy. Oh, it is. It is incredibly hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, it's one of those things we, we get things confused a lot of times because they're simple. Yeah. So it's kind of a simple answer. Just accept where you are. But simple and easy are often two completely <laughs> different things. So they're at mm. way opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and so I think what you said about grief, I mean, that's a, a key thing. We got to understand that. So, you know, I think sometimes people don't see themselves as having experienced trauma when they have because mm. uh, they think your know, trauma has to be this really, really big thing. And I mean, it, it can be this really, really big thing, but there's also kind of these small things that can definitely add up and be traumatic as well. And by trying to kind of act like they're not traumatic, we, again, we're not accepting things and we're kind of delaying that healing process. Um, And, you know, so I think with that too kind of goes, we just be careful with our thoughts, be careful with our words, and we can be a lot more patient and loving with ourselves because a lot of times what we're saying to ourselves we would never say that to someone else who was dealing with what we're dealing with. Yeah, so we can show them kindness and grace, but we can't show it to ourselves. Totally. It's the old golden rule flipped on its head. Yes. Yeah. Well, Heath, this has been uh this has been fascinating and incredibly helpful. And uh yeah, I really appreciate the time and I'm really glad you reached out and I'm really glad that we've had a chance to have this conversation and share all of this. But before I let you go couple final questions for you. I'd, I'd love to ask, where can people find you if they want to learn more or, you know, learn about some of the resources that you've talked about? Obviously, I'll, I'll share everything we've talked about in the show notes, but um, are, do you have a presence on the internet? I, um, I mean, I read that article that you shared. Right. Yeah. I do have a website. Um, so, yeah, I do see clients uh, for functional medicine and physical therapy. Um, so, the website is Healthy Design. FXMED, so short for functional medicine.com. Um, and so there are a couple other articles on there. Um, there's you know, kind of that first page too, kind of explains more what functional medicine is. Because uh, definitely here in the South, a lot of people aren't familiar with it. Uh, whereas, you know, maybe out West, um, people have heard of it a little bit more. Um, so I do have. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, but I am not very good about being active on social media. Good for you. (laughs) Yeah, I have this love-hate relationship with it, whereas I know it can be beneficial to kind of reach people, but I mean, even one of the articles I have is kind of some of the bad health effects that Mm. come from social media. Uh, Because, you know, again, you kind of see what most people are putting out on social media is all the good stuff. And you kind of don't see the bad stuff. And you know, I've noticed now, like some of the climbers too, they're starting to put some of their falls mm. on Instagram, which I think is a good thing. Um, I did have one fall. I don't remember what problem it was on the moon board, but I took a video and, you know, I mean, I was doing a nice cross through and just drive fired right off. So, I mean, it was like this magic act of disappearing. And so I wanted to post it. I accidentally deleted it because, I, I mean, I thought it'd be great for people to see, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, I, I fell off of this. I'll get it later, you know, but yeah, I mean, we know like with bouldering too, you you fall like 99 times and then you finally get on that hundreds, but yeah, you know, the only people post that hundreds and don't mm. see all those falls. 
Um, and so I think that's kind of the way social media works a lot of times, but I think we can be more authentic and more honest and maybe not have those same effects. So I want to try to get more consistent with it. Um, we've unfortunately just had some different health issues with family members and things. So it's kind of definitely cut down on what I can do right now as far as being consistent. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. But I think there's links on that, on the website to, you know, Instagram and Facebook and everything. And on Facebook, I'll post some of the different research articles that kind of support some of the different things with functional medicine and getting that root cause instead of just treating symptoms. Perfect. Okay. I'll link to the website and I'll, I'll find those other links and I'll, I'll put direct links to your Instagram and Facebook in the show notes as well. Uh, prepare to be disappointed. <laughs> well, I think we keep people plenty busy with, uh, with things to look into if they're curious to go down the rabbit holes. So, <laughs> all right. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Watch, yeah. watch the Lormer videos. They'll, they'll entertain you. Yeah. 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 That, uh, the TEDx talk in particular was, was really mm-hmm. good. I, again, I recommend that for folks listening. Yeah. I like the nail in the shoe. That's yeah. A good line. So we'll, we'll let them watch that one to figure it out. Okay. <laughs> well, Heath, I always ask this question. What is something that you've been feeling especially grateful for lately? Um, like I said, we've, we've had some different health issues with different family members. And uh, so, yeah, just having good times with family, mm. uh, you know, being able to laugh and, like I said earlier, enjoy food. Um, those things I'm really grateful for is kind of the simple things that really mean so much. Mm. And so it's, it's good just knowing we have those good times because, you know, like I said, some of these health issues, they're serious and, you know, things aren't always good, but at least there's these, these moments. Well, thank you so much, Heath. I really appreciate you sharing all of this, and I think it's uh, I think it's going to be really helpful for people. Certainly helpful for me. So, yeah, I really appreciate it, and thank you again. Oh, well, Stephen, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity, and uh, yeah, thank you for asking questions too to make it more clear. Uh, I tried to avoid getting too much into the science because I want it to be understandable, but sometimes it's kind of hard. So I appreciate you helping guide things. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's it's hard when uh, when you're deep into the weeds and have been for years. It's it's hard to know uh, what other people don't know. It's it's easy to lose sight of that. So yeah, my pleasure. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Enjoy your evening. All right. You do the same. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Like we do it.